Nicholas Dart and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode, a slightly belated episode of Clean Tech Talk. It's Matthew and Nicholas here. We had a bit of a hiatus after our uh, reasonably good two-episode streak due to illness and a couple other things getting in the way, but there is so much to talk about, and we are delighted to be able to be back with you. Starting off, I'll let uh, Nicholas uh, take the floor here with his... Um, review and coverage of Lucid Motors Air. Yeah, indeed. Uh, hi, Matthew. It's good to be back, and it's good to be talking to you again. And um, uh, it's, it's been a while, indeed. I was really uh, fortunate about two weeks ago, uh, Lucid invited really just a few people at the uh, Los Angeles Peterson uh, Automotive Museum to unveil the air. And I don't know if you remember, but they, they really, the first unveiling they did was back in December, and it was right after Faraday's second unveiling of its car, or this time, I guess, the first time for the FF91 at CES. And that unveiling for the second time was just so odd because, again, the car wasn't really working. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was really actually driving, and uh, it, it raised further eyebrows. I've, I've learned since then, by the way, that Faraday uh, fired the first uh, communication people they had the first time around for CES, and I think they did the same thing again this time. So unfortunately, when Lucid Motors unveiled the air, I, I, I think I wrote something that said, oh, good Lord, another hyper-EV again, uh, and, you know, another uh, unobtainium kind of EV, and I, and I sort of, I was a little bit critical uh, with them, and so I approached the whole unveiling as, good Lord, what is this going to be, just another super duper car that that might never actually see the light of day especially not the way it is and at the very least would cost 200 to 400 thousand dollars or something like that i mean on paper the car is very impressive thousand horsepower they haven't yet um released the torque uh, uh, numbers and of course they, they they decide to go straight for the luxury segment which on a purely business point of view makes sense you know business models work better best if you reach directly into the you know 100 to 200,000 dollar uh, uh, range so i i approached the, the 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 situation like that i wasn't sure if it was real or not and i i met up with um with david mosley directly from the get go and if you don't know who he is, he's actually the one responsible with um, Peter Ronson with, uh, with designing the Model S, actually the Roadster, the Tesla Roadster and Model S, including Model X, uh, battery pack uh, way back in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2005 actually. And so these guys, you know, the story goes and, and they sort of confirmed it without, you know, with, without wanting to say yes or no kind of thing. But um, when Martin Eberhardt, um, Ian Ripespeed, and Elon Musk went to them and they said, okay, well, design a battery pack for a little roadster and eventually we'll have a sedan and so on and so forth. And, and so both of them said, well, yeah, but how do we do that? And, and so they were said, well, get the experts. And so these guys said, there are no experts. Uh, this is brand new territory. Uh, AC Propulsion did something, but they're not interested in manufacturing cars. So, you know, long, long story short, these guys wrote the book on 
battery uh, designing to a certain extent, uh, but specifically battery pack uh, designing and management and everything. They really built it from, from the grounds up, from scratch. So I was very excited to meet David, who is your your typical English uh, engineer. Um, it was really fun talking to him because he was just, he was really excited. He said, you know, this is, this is fantastic. So David really had a lot to say about the electric motor, what electric motor they would use, what batteries they would use, how they would use them and everything. And Peter was uh, more of the design brain of the car. So Peter is also known for having designed the Model S or partly, of course, you know, it takes more than one person to design anything. And so what they told me, and this was before the whole event started, what they told me is that, that, you know, they really wanted to do the next generation. And I thought, okay, well, that's a bit of a pompous thing to say. I mean, you know, everybody wants to do the next generation. But the more I talked to them, the more I was convinced that, wow, they really actually did the next generation. So instead of having... Um, you know how the Model S works, right? You've got a, a central battery pack that acts as a subframe. model, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they decided to actually, you know, go back to a more traditional uh, design, but thinking of really a, of an EV. And what they did is then they put the batteries wherever it made most sense without sacrificing the interior space. And I can go on forever about the specs of the car, um, slightly smaller than a Model S outside, about the size of an A6, uh, but more space inside. I mean, much more space. And that was a truly impressive thing. So on the design point of view, it was like, wow, pretty impressive. Of course, then they managed to shoehorn a thousand horsepower into it. And what really surprised me was the quality uh, of the details, the quality of how it was put together, the manufacturing quality. Granted, yes, it's not a production car just yet. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen all, all, all the starts and the unveilings of all EVs up until now. This was by far like like the the, the best uh, quality quote unquote that I could see, but all of this is all fine, right? You've got just one car there, and everybody's gooking over it and just just in awe over the car. The test ride, Matthew, I, you know, the first time I went into, I drove a, a, a Roadster. That was my eye opener. I was like, wow, these electric cars, they really get it. That's it, blah blah blah, so on and so forth. Yeah. The second time I had. A, a feeling like that was in the model as the P90D at the unveiling that, you know, power was phenomenal. The autonomous driving uh, system was, was really a ton, uh, was really phenomenal. And, but, you know, it's, it's been pretty far and few in between. I mean, every other cars are nice, but they're not nothing like, like adrenaline pumping, shocking or anything like that. Mm. That car was insane. We were four people in the car, including the driver. And I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank at, at that moment. The car didn't have any active suspension. We were on the parking lot of the uh, of the museum, which of course is a parking lot. It's not a good, you know, surface. Man, we went up a spiraling up, up you know, up spiraling uh, um, sort of, uh, I, I guess, access way to the to the the parking lot above we were doing 25 miles an hour in that thing without any active suspension the car was thrown back and forth between obstacles the chassis was so resilient very stiff but it didn't brutalize you anyway short story again uh i i thought it was pretty impressive this is a chassis that hasn't been fully sorted out yet uh including suspensions the tires were straight off the they, they had just bought the tires about a day or so ago so they hadn't had time to even work them out 
I, I, I was. Mentioned they were Pirelli tires, I think, right? They were Pirelli tires. They just took, you know, let's go for the Pirellis. They could have gone for Michelin. They could have gone for, you know, so many other things. So it was really, I was impressed with it. And that car was very different from the inside car because that was really your driving mule. That was a mule. The, the back seats didn't recline. And, and yeah, I was, uh, I was very impressed. Also, I was impressed by the fact that the car was as is. It was a mule. It had wires everywhere and they were not apologetic about it they said hey this is what it is we're not trying to blow a, a, a fairy dust that you right. so, th- so anyway yeah i could talk forever about it. yeah <laughs> uh, i certainly it certainly does seem that uh, lucid is a bonafide real player one can wonder with concern perhaps about how faraday future will be faring because they've They've seemed to have a, a few hiccups already. This yeah. On, but Lucid does seem to have all its I's dotted and T's crossed. Uh, I did. Uh, I did uh, note that it was a four-seat car, which I wonder. I wonder whether that kind of helps with the luxury. Uh, yes. Comfort because you're not actually trying to squish three people side by side by side in the back seat, so you can actually make two really luxurious, really nice uh, seats in the back there. And, uh, and you'd mentioned the detailing. Again, um, we'll, we'll put the link up uh, in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, it, it does bring to mind your, uh, your Bentleys, your, your Ferraris or Maseratis. Uh, there is definitely space in the auto sector if you're a, a luxury maker, and many luxury makers do try to climb down into the more mainstream area where profit margins are lower, but if you've got everything running smoothly you can more than make up for that with volume by selling a lot more of a slightly less profitable vehicle that's the, those are all good points because what what we did see that evening was the car the great car the silver car that you see is really the top of the line that's going to be squarely for the luxury uh, uh segment the back seats recline more than in a maybach and i've been in a maybach this was very, very comfortable. So this is absolutely for luxury. But they will have, you know, the one that starts out at $100,000. So they, tell, they told me $100,000 was the mark for the very first uh, basic air that you can get. And that would have four normal seats. But they said that once it is going into full production, they're, very, they're, they're expecting to hit $65,000, which, which makes sense. It's, it's perfect. That's a perfect price for that kind of car, at least. So... Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. As as you get uh, cheaper, then your market expands dramatically. Absolutely, so production be, rolls and. So yeah, yeah, that's right. I would be very interested to know what their production model is. In that, uh, not the production model vehicle, but how they decide to do production, because you can go yeah. to a variety of uh, actual sort of. Um, Basically, they're like the Foxconn or the Flextronics for cars. I think Magna is one of the big players. I think a Magna Stein, which is a, a subdivision, actually makes the BMW i3, if I'm not mistaken. So there are companies who will take your designs and will do contract manufacturing for you. And yes, I would think that if you're Lucid Motors, uh, if you've got this beautiful product, do you really want to try and uh, add on raw manufacturing capabilities, all those skill sets, all those, all the extra capital that's needed. Mm. Uh, you can just see how, uh, how Tesla has had uh, initial teething problems. Then they seem, things seem to get better. Now they're looking at, you know, possibility yeah. of facing down the UAW. If you go with a contract manufacturer, you spend, you know, a lot of your money goes to the contract manufacturer, but you don't have to worry about all these uncertainties, all this infrastructure, where am I going to plant this and that? That's all, that's all turnkey. 
you let the other person take care of it. It's their job. It's their specialty. You can focus all of your attention on just bringing out beautiful designs, you know, while, while working with the contract manufacturer to make sure you're not adding cost unnecessarily. You know, maybe, maybe one particular and creative. I, I think you're totally right. In. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, no, I think you're totally right. And that's actually the follow-up I was going to do. I was invited to go out there at the headquarters in Menlo Park. And actually, what we would talk about these things, it sounds so far that they are going the Tesla way. Because, you know, I think we have to remember that uh, having somebody else manufactured, whether it's uh, Magnastair or, or Vallejo or any of these guys, um, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, it's the fiscal karma problem, basically. And, and you're totally right. All the points you made were right. But Tesla has proven that you can actually do it yourself. And I think, I'm not sure, don't quote me on it just yet, but that they are really going towards the manufacturing of the cars in um, Arizona, where they will have their, their manufacturing capacity. So, so it's going to be interesting to see what they choose, um, which route they choose eventually. Right. Okay. Sorry. I think they did. They did have an announcement uh, for Arizona. I was wondering if they would bring in. Uh, they would bring in like subcontracting, basically, for the expertise. Certainly, though, um, if you do have a very compelling vehicle, it sounds like it is a very compelling vehicle. Then uh, you should be able to draw the talent in. It's. It's simply a matter of. Yeah. bringing in those extra skill sets. It's like. Uh, it's like going from I don't know some sort of creature which has a. It's multi It has maybe a mouth <laughs> and a digestive tract, like adding eyes and ears and nose and you know limbs and things like that. So yeah, uh, that, that's actually very yeah. well said, and, and you're right. And, and they did attract the the right people, and that's the part that I was really uh, uh, amazed with. Uh, Derek Jensen, who was with Mazda before and previously with Volkswagen, designed you know the last uh, MX-5 Miata. So he really knows what he's doing, and he pretty much. Um, design the car as is but what what surprised me most to be honest with you is they they have less than 300 people so faraday future has more than a thousand people um and and that's why those numbers are, are impressive 300 people do that in, in in that you know in those years so to me i think at this stage i would keep my eyes on lucid motors and next ev who's also a very strong a contender and Faraday. Well, let's just let's just see what happens in the next few months. I, I'm, you know, I can pretty much assure you that after this kind of unveiling, they will uh, they will have something to say. They have right. to. Oh, very definitely. Um, and uh, in terms of having something to say, uh, that may be a decent segue into uh, another story we want to cover. Yes. Uh, again, we, we do have uh, many stories we could cover in the back catalog of a couple months that we've uh, missed out here. But uh, GM's recent announcement that uh, it could deploy thousands of autonomous bolts, that's bolt as in, I don't know, brave, as, a, as opposed to uh, volts as in, you know, I don't know voltage. Uh, and uh, there were a couple of interesting angles to this for me. One was that uh, it, it would deploy these, it said it could or it would deploy these in 2018. I would imagine that the timing probably depends mostly on how many volts they, uh, they sell to uh, to uh, you know, private customers, how many regular uh, long-range uh, bolts they sell. If sales go stronger than expected, perhaps they uh, they shift the data a little bit further in 2018. But uh, if if the market isn't as strong as they'd like, then perhaps it moves a little bit earlier. Uh, one interesting one another interesting angle is that the GM has a ride sharing company Maven as well as its ride hailing service which is Lyft I think it owns 9% of Lyft and these autonomous vehicles uh, would be for the Lyft uh, division or the Lyft uh, Lyft um, pr uh, product line 
the ride hailing activities, the Uber competitor. And there were a couple of reasons we were wondering or were speculating why this might be the case. And one is that if you're doing a car share, then you might actually take your car on long trips. You know, if you're in California, maybe you, you go to like Lake Tahoe or something like this, or maybe you go visit the Grand Canyon, you know, when your relatives come over. But if you're, if you're doing a ride hailing, if you're taking an Uber, a taxi, then chances are you're not really going to go outside of your metropolitan area. It's just not something that we generally do on a on a uh, on a uh, higher basis, a vehicle for higher basis. So one advantage to um, using Lyft as its incubator, as its test bed for these autonomous vehicles, is that the vehicles will only have to really know their one particular area. Maybe they'll be in you know um, in the Bay Area, certainly. Uh, perhaps a couple other early adopter areas that GM selects. And so you don't have to worry about managing all the different uh, weather types, road types. Traffic signs are probably universal across the states, but uh, in different countries, in Europe, for example, uh, you might go from Germany into uh, Denmark, into Sweden, Norway, uh, different languages, a whole variety of things that you would have to worry about that you don't really have to worry about if you're restricting this first batch of autonomous vehicles to a ride-hailing service where people are just going around town. And so you could have hundreds, maybe thousands of vehicles all in one town, all uh, developing a very nuanced, very uh, sensitive um, very detailed learning about how to get around this town and your customers kind of already uh, are going to self-select, so they only stay within the town. It's it's very um, it's very impressive, and it does seem to be a case where um, uh, GM has uh, nosed past uh, Tesla as well as even Google. Uh, Google obviously doesn't want to make cars; uh, they want to sell the uh, the the platform. They've got phenomenal amount of uh, miles and data, but. Uh, Google's not really in a position to be able to say, hey, we're going to send out thousands of our systems in a, in, in a, in a year or two. Yeah, I think, I think you've got a really good point there. And, and when back then when GM was talking about uh, buying, uh, uh, you know, going into partnership with Lyft, I thought, wow, this is exactly what those car makers need to do. Uh, they know that everything is with, you know, it's a sharing economy. Obviously, this is where you make money, Facebook sort of thing. And, but they are the manufacturer. So having that, that physical production capacity, the best thing they can do is get on board with that whole sharing economy. Hence, you know, the, the Madison uh, uh, deal that they struck. And for, for me, I think the, the really important part, and that's the part that we're barely scratching the surface, is the sheer computing power of autonomous driving and coordinating all of this and everything. Yes, we've got, you know, the Internet as a platform, but it's going to take a lot of coding, a lot of writing, a lot of programming to come up with the algorithms to coordinate all of this, coordinate the vehicles. Uh, and so, yeah, I think GM is really, if they play their cards well, which I, I don't see why they wouldn't, they're, they're definitely going to go past everybody else. And it sort of makes me wonder, I understand what Ford is doing also. Ford is trying to get into that. But I'm, I'm feeling at this stage, it sounds like GM is well ahead of the game. With that. Um, however, and I think, sorry, why don't you go ahead? I was going to talk about the infrastructure. Oh well, um, yeah. So uh, just on the GM side, uh, they they uh, when they they announced they were going to buy Cruise, that's their they're now their autonomous division for a billion dollars. I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. What 
what on earth <laughs> yeah. is, uh, is is this um was you know are, are they deliberately burning shareholder money uh, but clearly um the presentations and the data they saw uh, are quite obviously uh, very valid. Cruz actually did a lot of their earlier testing with Nissan Leafs. So you've got to figure that Nissan might have had a chance to, uh, to yes. tires as well. And perhaps Nissan has their own um, has their own activities. You know, we wouldn't have as much visibility since a lot of their testing will be done in Japan uh, as opposed to California. But um, it does certainly look like a very smart, very uh, uh, a very astute play by GM. And yes. one which uh, kind of shows that, you know, uh, Detroit isn't as sexy as, as the Valley, as the Bay Area. Uh, however, it is still, um, it's still relevant. Uh, Ford is playing catch-up. Um, they've got a lot of smart people. I'm sure, they can, I'm sure they can do a lot of work and do a lot of learning of their own. But, yeah, GM. Wow, GM. Yes. You know, leading on you know, mass-produced electric <laughs> vehicles on... Never would have thought it growing up. No, I, I, I never would. And by the way, I'm, I'm in line to get um, a test drive with a bolt pretty soon, so for a whole week. So we'll, we'll see how it works. Did you notice that there's one thing that's absent from this whole release here is um, what about the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure? Because, you know, in, in Europe, uh, I think it's Daimler, BMW, and Ford got together to build their own super fast charging uh, network. So we still won't have that over here. And granted, we have Chatamo and we have uh, CSS to a certain extent. So that's going to be very interesting. I'm, I'm waiting for that part to show up pretty soon because they're probably working on it. Yeah, I would imagine that if you're on a ride-hailing kind of application, uh, that the autonomous bolts would go back to a central garage at night. I'm not sure. Like, I would imagine that you would probably drive uh, less than 200 miles in the course of a day. Uh, yes. And or uh, even even for an autonomous uh, taxi, basically, which is uh, what this is. Uh, and even there, you could probably alternate where you probably have less busy times, less you know non-peak periods, maybe between the morning rush and lunch, and between lunch and the evening rush, where you can probably you know in the morning half of the fleet uh, does their char- a bit of supplemental charging in the early afternoon maybe the other half of the fleet does a little bit of supplemental charging i i'm sure there's a way to get around this without uh, deploying uh, a humongous number of fast chargers uh, expensive fast chargers and it will be fascinating to see i'm sure that gm will want to brag about this if i was there yes. i certainly would and so it will be very interesting and it'll be delightful intellectually to to see how they're managing this overall approach because i'm sure whatever they do their competitors will also come up with uh, relatively similar models oh yeah oh absolutely and, and and again you know just watch for one unveiling watch for another unveiling and then then you can kind of see the pattern but yeah definitely gm is in the is in the lead right here and that's really good to see Right. Uh, all right. That's probably about all the time that uh, we want to take up for you guys in your morning commute, afternoon commute, uh, generic podcast listening uh, schedule budget. So um, we will do our absolute best to be back next week, about about this time of week. Uh, I will also try and work out with uh, Nicholas to see if we can send out some quote-unquote lost episodes of uh, very, very... <laughs> Very small uh, <laughs> audio commentary, but with the uh, the show notes that I'd actually pre-written up, but been, been unable to record a show for because of uh, of lingering illnesses, which are happily, you know, knock on wood, uh, behind us. Uh, 
Yes. So, um, yeah. Thank you all so very much, and um, you know, tune in. Uh, tune in next time. Get your electric fix. Great, and, and thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful day, wonderful evening, and we'll uh, talk to you next week.